0: This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for
1: subscribing,
0: and please rate us on iTunes. Hello, and welcome to KCOU 88.1. We are The Big Electron. I'm Anahita.
1: I'm Adam. Hi.
0: And we have a really cool uh, show for you today, I think.
1: This should be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, we're gonna start with an interview. It's um, that we recorded, I believe it was last week, with Ryan Davison, who is a um, lobbyist for the American Chemical Society.
1: Yeah, and this is an interview conducted by Ana who's here in the studio. Yeah. Uh, with me and uh, and Jackie, one our, of our other our co-hosts, who is, leader, <laughs> who is not here in studio today, but you can still uh, hear her ask the real pressing questions.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay, so I guess we will go to the Nobel Prize.
1: I had an idea. It's actually going to be done.
0: Well, I think it's really exciting that, um, you know, we have this perfect week for us. It's the Nobel Prize week.
1: Yeah, this is definitely a gift for student radio uh, science shows um, to have the Nobel Prizes coming right up because your topic is basically set and uh, we don't have to do any thinking in advance, except for figuring out what exactly the prizes have been awarded for. And this year, they are some pretty cool stuff. Um,
0: So we're going to talk about three subjects that were awarded Nobel Prizes. The first of which is physiology or medicine.
1: Right. So this year's prize went to a Japanese scientist named uh, Yoshinori Osumi. And uh, he works on a, a phenomenon that occurs in, you know, big creatures like ourselves called autophagy, which is a fancy Greek word meaning uh, self-eating. So this is a pretty strange process where parts of a cell will basically uh, gobble themselves up or, or destroy themselves, basically. And that might seem like not a great idea to do if you were a cell. You might think to yourself, um... I'm not going to uh, decompose my own component parts. That would be bad for me. But uh, well, turns out this occurs. It,
0: okay, I was going to make a joke.
1: But, oh, please! No, no, I'm, no you're, I'm all for jokes.
0: It's fine.
1: Also, I'm <laughs> I was going to say grad
0: school is where you self-destruct.
1: <laughs> oh, that? Well, yeah, that's the other place where you self-destruct. The other biological process of self-destruction: <laughs> biology students in grad school. Um, but um, yeah, this process is. Uh, a little bit more purpose-driven <laughs> than than that. So, um,
0: so autophagy. O- so
1: autophagy. Yeah. Autophagy or self-devouring uh-huh. um, is. Um,
0: so how do you win a Nobel Prize in this?
1: <laughs> well, you start doing work uh, in the 1990s on some on using a model system of yeast cells. Uh, you know, single-celled fungus, uh, yeast cells in the 1990s, and he was working on a bunch of genes in their DNA that seemed to do this. Uh, and basically what this man, uh, Yoshinori Osumi, has been awarded the Nobel Prize for is um, is uh, understanding the mechanisms of how it works, you know, the different component parts. And it's probably not going to be a lot of fun to give a bunch of, like, um, gene names and describe in detail how they how they relate to each other, especially considering their names are usually three letter abbreviations, which is not, not so much hmm. fun. Uh, like here, here are some of the exciting names of the genes discovered by Mr. Osumi, okay. APG, uh, AUT, CVT, GSA, <laughs> AFJ. I'm sorry. That last one was a joke. That's my initials. Oh. <laughs> I, I was not discovered by Dr. Osumi. Um, but, um, yeah. So basically figuring out how this process works is a pretty reasonable uh, justification for giving this guy an award because it's complicated yeah. and it's weird and there's not really anything else quite like it. So figuring out how this happened is pretty exciting stuff in terms of understanding how our bodies work at a cellular level. So, Yeah,
0: that totally makes sense. Well, and you know what? It's kind of cool because obviously the Nobel Prize comes with like money,
1: but yeah, for the yeah.
0: rest of time... This person is the person who won the Nobel Prize in 2016. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I bet that helps a lot with, like, feature funding and collaborations and things like that. Like,
1: Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and say that a uh, Nobel Prize winner probably doesn't have to worry much about being approved <laughs> for grants right. from, from his government. Because um, that's how, I mean... Biology and chemistry and physics and other other sciences works is, you know, this is, you know, these are researchers oftentimes Mm -hmm. working for for universities who get grant money.
0: And then I bet also because it's already shown to be, you know, a favorable route of research, other people will jump on the I hate to use the word, but bandwagon. And so, like, (laughs) there'll be a lot more studies coming out, a lot more papers about autophagy. I'm sure. And so we're going to start learning a lot about this field.
1: That's, I have no doubt true. It's also probably true, though, to some degree, that that's already been happening. Yeah, true. Usually by the time these guys get the Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. it's already kind of been out there a little while. Right. Uh, Dr. Osumi did his the bulk of his work in the 90s, uh, and that's, you know, 20 years ago now. So, um, And there have been people working on it in that time. Uh, usually these prizes are only awarded after quite a few years with people verifying the stuff isn't, you know, bunk, uh, that it's, you know, yeah. legitimately uh, a good model of the system that they're studying and so on. And um, very rarely, uh, possibly never, uh, give this prize unless it's been pretty thoroughly earned uh, in some fashion. That is to say the science uh, <laughs> Nobel Prizes. I can't speak for the others. Oh, um, well, yeah. There's, but no doubt this thing is... It's pretty good marketing for the process of autophagy, though, for sure. There's going to be more people wanting to get involved in this now that they've heard about it in this detail and understand how important it is to to the cell. So, um, Just a quick explanation mm-hmm. about why this thing happens, by the way. The real thing, autophagy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you've got billions of cells in you, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure you all do. All of you listening and understanding <laughs> this have billions of cells. That's how it works. They're very small. But they get damaged, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of them get damaged and have to be removed. Um, it's easy enough to replace them, um, but you have to clear the debris. And basically this process is um, a way that a cell recognizes, oh, I'm just being debris here, aren't I? Oh,
0: and it, totally cleans, makes sense. it
1: cleans itself up. So that's that's the essential nature of this, hmm. of this process, is um, a way that the cell can break down its component parts, which can be usable material for uh, other cells that would, fill its spot because hmm. uh, ultimately the cells in our body aren't, um, aren't really fighting for their own benefit. Like they can't, you know, they don't have an independent existence. So if it was just a cell by itself, it wouldn't make much sense. But
0: It's kind of, yeah, it kind of is a crazy thing to think about that. We have so many cells. Oh yeah. And they're reproducing, so quickly and i guess going through autophagy so quickly that well, we all kind of balance out some of them do right
1: i mean mm-hmm. not all of our cells are constantly being regenerated mm-hmm. but some are uh, some systems in our body recycle the cells faster than others like mm-hmm. our blood cells turn over pretty quick mm-hmm. as far as i understand it although i don't know how big a process autophagy is in that mm-hmm. in that aspect of it but certain cells within our bodies are replaced Fairly often, you know, think about your skin.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Others like, uh, you know, brain matter and so on, they Mm. never get replaced. They they reproduce enough to have enough cells and then they just stay there basically Mm. for your whole life. So uh, we're weird. The stuff that goes on in our bodies is pretty weird. Yeah. It's exciting (laughs) to try and uncover what it is and how it (laughs) works. So uh, Dr. Osumi from um, the studies of autophagy has been awarded the Nobel Prize for figuring out one more Tiny little aspect of how, uh, very physically tiny (laughs) aspect of how we work. So kudos to him.
0: Okay. So uh, another field of science that is awarded a Nobel Prize is um, physics. So the Nobel Prize in Physics for 2016 was awarded to three people. Uh, David Thules from the University of Washington Duncan Haldane from Princeton University and J. Michael Kosterlitz.
1: Kosterlitz.
0: Thank you. From Brown University.
1: I like names. I'm
0: I'm glad you're here then. (laughs) (laughs) And they revealed the secrets of exotic matter, which I
1: think is a fun
0: fun name. So they used um, very advanced mathematics that I would not be able to deconvolute to be able to study unusual states of matter. So that has to do with superconductors, superfluids, and other magnetic films. So now we have, um, through, and through this mathematic, these mathematical methods, they found that there are uh, room for new and exotic phases of matter. So hopefully, with the, with the idea that hopefully these new sources of matter or types of matter will be um, useful in making materials.
1: New types of matter. yeah. So, when I think of types of matter, you correct me if I'm understanding this right. I, mm-hmm. I think of you know a couple of different categories. Like we have gases, like the air we breathe; mm-hmm. liquids, like water, and then solids, like most of what we see. Okay, is that so? What we're those talking are
0: about? common phases of matter: right, gas, liquid, and solid. Uh-huh. But then when you move to really, really high or really, really low temperatures. Matter has to take on other states to accommodate the extreme heat or extreme cold. And it's these other states or exotic states that we're
1: talking about. Oh, so they're going outside of the box in terms of, you know, liquid, solid, and gas. They're going into X, Y, and Z after that. Yes.
0: So if you go really, really hot, plasma is another state of matter that we often hear about. So that would be in the really, really hot range. Okay. And um, they started thinking of the really, really cold which is um, quantum um, condensate.
1: Quantum condensate. Yes. doesn't quite roll off the tongue as quickly as solid liquid and gas.
0: Right. I, I just want to stay with the solid liquid and gas.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's easier to pronounce. It's in but... my
0: chemistry world. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, they are going really, really close to absolute zero. So absolute zero is negative 270 degrees Celsius.
1: And, and if I understand right, absolute zero is when like, molecules and atoms like are so cold they're not even moving they're nothing
0: like... can exist at that level of cold oh because of that exact thing okay so you can't have anything it's not it's not that it's frozen it's that nothing can handle that level of cold <laughs> so yeah everything okay. stops moving everything stops interacting
1: we're talking about they're approaching like the coldest like, theoretically impossible temperature.
0: Exactly. So, we're talking about the... Sing, uh, so, so, negative so 270 degrees Celsius is zero Kelvin. We're talking about single-digit Kelvin. Ah. Yes. So, very, very cold.
1: Sounds chilly. Yeah.
0: yeah. We would obviously not function because nothing would function in
1: that. Even the molecules aren't functioning there. So.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, the first time this stuff was ever studied was back in the 1930s. And it was down to... So at that point, we were in the, they were in the negative, I'm sorry, in the single digit Kelvin again. And it was a Russian scientist, Dr. (laughs) Kapitsa, which is a fun name. And he super, he cooled down helium and was dealing with superfluids. So ever since the 1930s, we've wanted, and obviously before that, we've wanted to see what happens when we get really, really cold. And so starting in the 1970s, um... David Thules and Michael, oh, I'm going to say it wrong again.
1: Uh, Kosterlitz?
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Kosterlitz, or working in England to start to cool things down and see what happens. So, okay. and they also um were looking at the transition
1: going from going from, state from like state of very cold to
0: from, from normal temperatures or from very hot temperatures to normal or from normal to cold. Okay. So um, they started building these mathematical models, if I understand correctly, off of these transitions. To
1: try and understand mathematically what they were seeing. Right. Happening when they would do weird stuff to this, right. to this matter. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that so kind of cool? Is this going to help us build Star Trek technology? I,
0: guess. I can only hope.
1: Because I heard you <laughs> mention superconductors in there. And I'm familiar with what that means. Just to... Really briefly explain it to folks. What what does that mean exactly? I might not know.
0: That's a great question.
1: <laughs> okay, well, let me, give, let me give my understanding. I have no idea what it is, but it's basically, you know how wires in your house or anywhere uh, move electricity around? Mm-hmm. There's a conducting material in it, like a metal, yes. that likes to pass electrons really efficiently compared right. to everything else. Right. So you can send an electrical... Uh, power or electrical signal or something through this metal wire
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, and it'll you know you'll go from you'll send that from one site to another
0: right it's like but if you, you had a pipe of water and right. that white water or and the pipe was the conductor
1: right but i guess with electrical circuits and mm-hmm. electrical materials. You lose a little bit of that power or signal every time you send it anywhere.
0: Yes. So some water gets stuck in the pipe.
1: Right. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's my understanding. And a superconductor.
0: Doesn't have that stuck in the pipe.
1: Right. So it's like 100% efficient. Mm -hmm. And you can make other objects do really weird stuff like float with it.
0: Yeah. So magnets will levitate over. Um, high-temperature superconductors when they're cooled, I think. Oh, good. Or, or something crazy like that.
1: <laughs> so I've heard of, but like, theoretical ideas like building, like if we could actually make superconductors and figured out
2: mm-hmm.
1: what, how they worked well enough to build this, we could build, like, you know, rail networks out of superconductor materials that would barely cost any energy at all for example
0: absolutely but there are a lot of applications for superconductors so um they also go into things like um oh how am I I'm trying to think of like <laughs> like that? particle accelerators is the words oh. I was trying to think of oh yeah so I do know that like so ma- anything oh, where magnets are exciting. used really so. Um, different types of analytical techniques that we use in labs. If we could incorporate superconductors in them, they would do their job better.
1: So we could do more science with these superconductors. Yeah. Ah, well, the scientist in me is very excited about that possibility. And then also, if we're talking
0: about zero resistance, that would be great for just our electricity. Yeah. Like electricity comes from somewhere. And if we're losing a little bit in, in the wires...
1: Well, we do for sure. I yeah. Mean, so we'd have more efficient power systems if we can incorporate this sort of thing. Right. Wow. So something
0: really cool I want to say about one of the f- um, physicists that won the Nobel Prize, which was um, he was from Princeton. So that was Doctor Duncan M. Haldane. Mm-hmm. So at four thirty in the morning, if you're a Nobel Prize winner, you get a phone call. Oh. From Switzerland. And I'm sorry, from Sweden. <laughs> and Is
1: it because it's like noon there or something? I guess so. That's okay. probably
0: like normal time for them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you get a call from Sweden. And um, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences calls you and tells you you win a Nobel Prize. So it's 4.30 in the morning. You're anxious for that call. You know, you you heard it through the grapevine. You're on the short list. Right. So what do you do after that?
1: After you get the call?
0: After you get the call. What would you do?
1: At 4.30 in the morning? Yeah. Well, I'd like to think I'd go back to bed, but I probably couldn't sleep.
0: Probably couldn't sleep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, But.
0: uh, Maybe get breakfast, you know,
1: celebrate. Probably just go bang on my neighbor's door and say, I want
0: this thing. (laughs) Well, Dr. Haldane got ready for work and went and taught his class at Princeton. Oh, goodness. Isn't that great?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I really love that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really great. I. I. I, I imagine if I was in his position and I had a class, I would say I sent an email to my students saying this class is canceled on account of me winning the Nobel Prize.
0: <laughs> I'm a Nobel Prize winner. You guys can read from I, chapter five I, and
1: call I, it. I quit. I, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> just um, that that is really remarkable. Isn't that it's great? Really cool.
0: Okay, and so the last field we'll talk about kind of quickly is um, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. So we had three scientists again win that. And that was Jean Pierre Sauvage. Mm. um, Sir J. Fraser Sodert,
1: Sir. Uh Yeah,
0: he's knighted. And Dr. Bernard um, Faringa. Faringa. Faringa.
1: Well, okay. I like names. Yeah. So
0: I have to ask do you think that he would be. Dr. Sir Frazier Sautert, or Sir Doctor, or is it just Sir?
1: Oh, I don't know about that Which one
0: do you think is
1: better? I really don't know. Um, Once, a few years ago, we had a speaker here at the University of Missouri, which is where we're broadcasting from, in Mm -hmm. case you somehow did not know that, um, who was um, a Sir from the UK and a a very highly regarded biologist there, and um, he... We asked him how we should call him and he said, Dave. So (laughs) we never really got the answer to what order the doctor and the sir go in. Uh, So anyway, I assume that this guy is, what is his full name?
0: Sir J. Frazier Soddert.
1: He probably just says, call me Jay. That's my guess. (laughs) Uh, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, so they won um, the Nobel prize in chemistry, for making, mo- for the development of molecular machines, these machines are a thousand times thinner than a hair strand.
1: That sounds small.
0: Isn't that crazy? Wow.
1: So that, I, you have to imagine there'd be a bazillion applications for something like that if we could make it work.
0: Yeah, So, and what's kind of cool about them is that they're molecules that are ring-shaped that are interlocking.
1: The, the rings are interlocking
0: yeah the rings are interlocking so hmm. what <laughs> so what mechanical purpose does that serve it <laughs> was kind of my thought process like what
1: lifting very very small loads
0: <laughs>
1: yeah maybe <laughs> that is an interesting
0: question well and i keep on thinking like are they going to make like the olympic rings and that's going to be like a macro mini molecule machine <laughs> So anyway, what, what, the purpose of this, though, is that it's the first step, step towards making a molecular motor. Ah. And so um, these two interlocking rings uh, fulfill a requirement that a machine needs, which is it needs different parts to be able to move. And by having two interlocking rings, they have the ability to move.
1: In relation of, to each other? In relation to each other, uh, yeah. Okay.
0: And so um, if one ring is rotated the other ring will also rotate.
1: Oh, like a gear? Yeah. And that was kind
0: of why they needed to be interlocked and how they fulfill the requirement
1: of being a machine. That's pretty neat.
0: Isn't that really cool?
1: So they built a very, very tiny gear.
0: Yeah. Huh. And so from there, they worked together to build um, a little bit more advanced models. And... um, Part of the application of this is that they started working towards building uh, minuscule computer chips, but a muscular minuscule computer chip. So it can have the motion, it can have the ability of motion while being a computer chip, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: So it doesn't just calculate something, have (laughs) a one or zero state, it actually like moves.
0: It can also do push-ups.
1: Oh, cool. (laughs) Does push-ups and does math.
0: (laughs) That's so, really yeah. neat. Those are the um, three more science ones. We also, of course, for Nobel Prize, there is um, there are other categories, obviously. There is literature, peace, um, and economic sciences. So since science is in the word, I'll real quick say <laughs> <laughs> that. Um, let me see. Who won?
1: I'm not sure it's been announced yet, uh, who won this year's uh, economics prize.
0: I think everything had to have been announced by now. You think?
1: I'd, I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, I'm going to frantically Google this uh, as we talk also <laughs> so that I can become an expert.
0: Well, now you've got me stumped, Adam.
1: List of Nobel laureates. <laughs> There's a, that's quite an interesting date of uh, a bit of reading. If you're ever interested, is wiki <laughs> wiki that. Um yeah. Literature has not been announced. It will be announced on Thursday, the 13th oh, okay. of October. So that will be this coming Thursday. And economics will be announced tomorrow. Oh, great. On Monday, the 10th.
0: So we have that to look forward to.
1: Absolutely. So we will find out. And um, that should be interesting in and of itself. But we can't yet talk about the economics, both because it hasn't been announced and because the two of us may or may not know what we're talking about. I know I would not. So.
0: Yeah, I could. I couldn't even pretend. But I would have liked to. (laughs) Well, we. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll take a real quick break and then we'll be back with that interview we promised you um, with lobbyist Ryan Davison. Hello. Welcome back to the Big Electron on KCOU 88.1. Okay, now we're going to go into our pre-recorded interview with Ryan Davison again. He's a lobbyist from the American Chemical Society. So today uh, we have with us Ryan Davison from the American Chemical Society. Welcome. Hi. Um, so I guess I would like to ask first, uh, what is it that you do exactly?
2: Uh, okay, so I work in the, um, at the American Chemical Society. Uh, we're the world's largest scientific society, uh, congressionally chartered. 1800s, very proud of that. I work in the Office of Public Affairs uh, and I specifically work in the advocacy side of things, which is kind of a clean word for lobbying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we are are trying to advance the uh, chemistry enterprise in many different ways, um, educating lawmakers and their staff about uh, legislation that helps chemistry, helps research. Uh, help science in America, and maybe um, trying to slow down things that are not helpful.
0: And so first, though, you went to graduate school for science. How did you get into science to begin with? Uh,
2: That's an interesting story. I, like most people, started college with uh, not a clear uh, path, and I took introduction to everything, essentially. (laughs) And my favorite class, no surprise, because it's easy and Uh, really interesting was introduction to psychology. Mm. So I became interested in human behavior, which, uh, you know, you get to know a little bit about it and it just kind of, uh, I don't know, you want to keep learning more and more because people are so uh, different and crazy in their own ways. Uh, So I ended up majoring in psychology. I got a bachelor's in psychology and then I got a master's in experimental psychology. What I liked most about human behavior was when you could actually uh, make it um, kind of predictive. And so that led me to neuroscience, which mm-hmm. is kind of you know, combining science and behavior. And, so, and then the brain was so fascinating that uh, it was not hard to be interested in it. Um, I didn't expect to spend seven years getting a PhD, but I did. <laughs> and it, it, there's no regrets. It's a good degree to have. So it was, it was the brain that really got me over
0: so real quick, why don't you tell us what your dissertation was about then?
2: Oh, God. <laughs> uh, let see if I can remember. Uh, I recorded uh, motor neurons in primates. I recorded the cells that sent their signal to the muscles that controlled the eyes. Hmm. So the, uh, the ocular motor system, uh, it's the area you have the finest motor control over in your entire body because your eyes have to move with such speed and stop on such a dime. It's, it's uh, uh, the coordinate the coordination involved is uh, amazing. So the cells that, that drive the muscles that move them have fascinating properties. Uh, when you have an electrode and you're moving through the brain, it sounds like a beehive when you get close to the ocular motor nucleus. You can hear the cells all firing, because as uh, um, some turn off, and turn on uh, really dramatically based on which uh, eye muscle they're being sent to. So what did I do? I measured the difference between the muscles that uh, move the eyes in the same direction, which are called saccadic eye movements, versus when the um, eyes move in opposite directions, which are called vergence eye movements. the six people in the world that cared about that seemed really interested in my work uh, and no one else really seemed to care all that much. I will tell you one interesting thing. Your eyes, if you put two fingers up and try and smoothly move your eyes from one finger to another, you can't do it. You, They're little broken, they're called saccadic eye movements, uh, but if you have a, a your gaze set to uh, a point, and then slowly move your finger back and forth, your eyes do a very good job of slowly moving back. So oh, you, you have to have, uh, you have to see a target, to, like you can see a bird fly through the sky, mm-hmm. but if you tried to slowly smooth your eyes from one star to another, you can't do it. Interesting. And it's just the way we evolved as as frontal seeing predators over time. Wow. So there you go. That's a really cool fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: We were we were totally doing that so if you were to good job <laughs> if not you should try it so how did you so how does one person go from psychology to neuroscience to advocating for chemists in Congress
2: yeah so I think I I, I told this to you guys over breakfast I always felt a kind of a calling uh, from uh, another person maybe a darker <laughs> side um, to, to be involved in politics. I, I can remember in uh, second grade um, talking to the, the music teacher, asked, some, or Ronald Reagan was running against, uh, was it 84? Uh, yeah, I think it was Reagan and Mondale. I don't know. I was really young and I was able to discuss the presidential election uh, in, in great detail to the point I, I realize now my teacher was in shock was the look on his face when a little kid was talking about which states that Reagan might carry. And so anyways, uh, I was I always loved politics and had a passion for it. And I wasn't a very good scientist, <laughs> which doesn't hurt either. Um, I, I, it took me a long time to accomplish scientific goals. So, uh, And you just kind of know. How, how do you spend your spare time what what do you do where, where really are your passions and your interests and mine always underlying everything I did was uh to be involved politically so it wasn't that hard after finishing school uh, I started a postdoc for a few months and then just realized I'm felt like I was needed to do something else mm-hmm. so yeah
0: so after your postdoc, um, what training did you have that allowed you to do advocacy for science?
2: Yeah, I can tell you what I did, and I'll tell you another alternative. Um, I was a fellow at the National Academy of Sciences. This is a great program. They take uh, scientists. Um, you can have even just a master's, and they'll place you at one of the national academies. There are, I believe, four. Um, I was at the National Academy of Engineering. There's also the Institute of Medicine and uh, I can't remember the other ones, but they take, uh, people are trained as scientists and put you in DC with some minor responsibilities so you kind of can learn how things work. That was a three-month fellowship. They do them twice a year, uh, Mm -hmm. one in the spring and one in the fall, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd recommend um, looking into that. If people are interested also, there's the AAAS. They do a one-year fellowship. Actually, it's a seventy-five thousand dollars stipend, which sounds like a lot when you're in graduate school.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> uh, not much in Washington. Um, and I actually applied for that one, and I didn't. I was rejected for that one, so I think it must not be a very good fellowship. Uh, <laughs> I have a little bit of a bias here. So, uh, National Academy of Sciences, I would do that one. Um, no, they're both. Th- those are <laughs> two ways um, to, to kind of transition from science and research into policy. You can also volunteer to work in a member's office. Those would often be unpaid positions, so that's a challenge, obviously. Uh, but any experience you can get uh, helps uh, with employment. I guess.
0: So for the National Academy of Sciences, you were, said you were in the engineering. Uh, was that based on your experience or your interest, or is it just, does that not really matter when you're doing the work, as long as you're a trained scientist?
2: No, that's a good question. You you get matched. Um, so there'll be maybe 20 people working at different parts of the National Academies that want a fellow. And so you write essays kind of saying, these are my interests. This is where I could help. And based on that, uh, you, you get matched with someone. Um, so it wasn't, I don't have an engineering background. Um, what I really ended up doing was planning a conference um, to study why there weren't more um, underrepresented minorities in engineering uh, programs. So really, it was just I, I don't know. Learn the metro system. You know, don't get lost in the city. It seemed like it, I mean, what I, I was not doing that high level stuff, but I worked with a really nice guy, and mm-hmm. um, there were people doing. Oh, we did have no, we did uh, put together a panel on um, Iraq san- sanctions, and they had a lot of mock exercises. They'd make you write briefs and. Mm-hmm. It was good training. I, I would highly recommend it, yeah.
3: So how does, so now now that you are a professional at, at this, um, after the training, can you explain a little bit of the process of how advocacy works um, for this specific purpose uh, with the American Chemical Society, or guess lobbying? Um, so I guess we can start with, with the question of why do you think people are so afraid of the lobbying instead of advocacy? Um, and then how does the process work?
2: Uh, I could talk for a couple hours, I think, on this <laughs> question. Um, you know, lobbying is has a negative connotation to it, and that's the idea of probably like a, an overweight southerner going in with a briefcase full of money asking for, uh, you know, turn the other way why I, why I use genetically modified crops or uh, who knows what. But lobbying in general has a negative connotation sometimes. But you're either um, at the table or on the menu, right? So just because there are some bad apples, uh, every interest is in represented in Washington, no matter what industry you could think of, from education to science to, uh, th- there are lobbyists in Washington trying to advance the interests of that industry. So it's good. Science is, and research is, uh, a noble cause, and I'm proud to be able to fight on its behalf, even if my job title might offend people outside of Washington a little bit. But they don't really know what they're talking about, so, um, so yeah, we what we do call it advocacy, and advocacy, you know, the word advocate just means to to try and um, advance the interests of of some perspective, some idea.
0: Okay, so now that we've kind of looked over the differences between advocacy and lobbying, or the lack thereof thereof. thereof (laughs) (laughs) difference, um, what does that advocacy or lobbying look like for you, I guess, on a daily basis for the American Chemical Society?
2: Sure. A a lot of different things go on on Capitol Hill. Um, And commonly, uh, before a bill or piece of legislation is written and introduced, there are hearings. So different committees they um, are composed of different, different members of Congress are on different committees. It's usually based on the um, interest of your constituents. So you might be on the Agriculture Committee if you were from a rural district uh, or something like that. But it doesn't al- that actually doesn't always uh, hold true because many of the committees are based on uh, seniority. And- so anyways, the different committees have different uh, hearings. And a hearing is you have a group of experts come speak to the members of the committee on some topic. And that's often set up uh, with a few weeks' notice, and they'll bring in four or five experts. The members of Congress get to ask questions of each one. I mean, I can give a famous example. of There was the Benghazi committee mm-hmm. who brought Hillary in to ask questions. I mean, that was, that was a hearing. That was a high-profile. Th- that's not how most hearings are. Most mm-hmm. hearings would be um, maybe... Uh, A scientific issue, the House Science Committee might bring in some witnesses to, to and they try and represent represent both uh, perspectives of whatever Mm -hmm. the issue. So there's a lot of hearings that go on. Then you'll have a bill uh, introduced by a member of Congress. So um, their office will write it, or who knows, different people might write the bill, and it will be introduced to the committee. Um, If it's a good bill and the committee likes it, people will co-sponsor it, and it might get a vote. So you have to have the majority of a committee vote on the bill, um, and if you it, it, vote for the bill, and then it would move on to the full chamber. So if it was in the House, the full House of Representatives would vote on it. If it was in the Senate, the full Senate would vote on it. For something to become a law, it has to pass the House, it has to pass the Senate, and then the president has to sign it and that rarely happens, uh, usually because there's different parties. Um, the, all the healthcare stuff passed when the Democrats had the House and the Senate and there was President Obama there. So uh, things really move when one party controls everything, but that, it doesn't happen often. Um, so yes, much of what goes on, hearings, uh, bill, they're called markups. That's when a bill is kind of getting edited by, a, uh, we, we, a lot of those happen. Uh, things – amendments will be introduced uh, before it gets a vote or maybe it gets re-voted on or maybe it goes to another committee. Um, it's – I don't know if you want to hear about the – this is like, really getting into the weeds. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And
0: I, yeah. I think it's something yeah. that – You know, uh, Schoolhouse Rock taught me how (laughs) I'm just a bill, but that's pretty much the extent of politics for Mm -hmm. me and a lot of people, so I think this is really helpful. I think
2: not many people understand how it's, you don't just go to Washington, D.C. and uh, represent your district or your state, you actually sit on committees. Mm -hmm. Um, There's appropriations, which decides uh, all the funding levels, there's uh, energy and Commerce, um, there, there's uh, everything. Uh, Indian Affairs, Small Business, there's lots of committees. But that's really w- the, how um, laws start. They're born in committees to address some issue that they, supposedly those people in that committee are experts on, um, or at least have an interest in. But it doesn't always work out that way, actually. It, much of it's based on seniority um, and how long one party has held uh, the majority because if you lose majority, then all the committee chairships, chairships, chairmanships, chairwomanships, are switched. <laughs> right. uh, so it's good to have a majority of a chamber of Congress. Yeah, it's really, it really gives you a lot more power.
3: Mm-hmm. So how does it work? At, at what point do you come in specifically when a bill is being brought up or when something is happening that it's of interest for um, for ACS? Uh,
2: I could be involved at any of the levels I described so there's a hearing I would attend the hearing um, and maybe just try and communicate with everyone in my office as to what's going on on some issue Um, if I have much of much of uh, advocacy is relationship building so I have friends I say friends, I have colleagues that I've known over the years that work in different members of Congress's offices, and that's valuable. Uh, So say there is something, uh, a bill that we don't really like, I could uh, try and get an office that is friendly to the ACS to add an amendment. So we could write up just even a couple sentences to um, a recent one was uh, they were trying to restrict federal employees from being able to travel. This was based on the uh, GSA's meeting in 2010 where they went to Las Vegas, and they spent $800,000 on magicians and fortune tellers and, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. but their job is to save taxpayers money. So Congress got wind of, oh, what we should do is restrict federal employees from traveling to conferences, which is strange because uh, scientists that work at the NIH, the NSF, you know, you you can't Skype Scientific advancement, you have to do this. so. We got uh, this. This bills of this nature were becoming popular, and we were able to get amendments put in uh, with a scientific exemption, to where if you were a scientist, you didn't have to follow these new restrictions. Um, so that's one example of how we specifically kind of got involved. Um, and you can have different timelines. You know, if you're advocating for more money for one of the agencies you have months to work on appropriators but then something like the government uh travel restrictions that happened in a day or two you know it's always an adventure
0: so how do you find out about what's coming down the pipeline the political pipeline <laughs>
2: yeah that's a that's a good question and uh the more time you spend on the hill, the more intelligence gathering you, you have. I could be meeting with a staffer about one issue, but then ask, "So, how does the uh, continuing resolution that the, your chamber is working on?" And that's always the game. Uh, you know, in th- what you know is is your value. So we try and we try and um, stay as, as up to the minute as possible as to what's going on. Well, yeah, but that, that is a challenge, and that's part of our jobs.
3: So how do you, um, so you represent ACS and how do you, how does ACS or you um, advocate, on, advocate on behalf of ACS, meaning what issues do you pick to, to advocate for? I was gonna say battle, but <laughs> I think advocate is, is better. Um, so yeah, how does, how does ACS or, or, or you um, represent those, those issues or pick those issues?
2: So, we represent uh, 160,000, we're actually at 158,000, <laughs> uh, 158,000 chemists, small business owners, engineers, and uh, so we we represent Republicans, Democrats, independents, we don't get involved in things that are very partisan. If just one party wants it, we usually won't get involved um, in it, but we have uh, policy statements. Uh, these are official positions we hold on a variety of variety of issues. We have everything from um, employment security to uh, um, retirement, health care, education, uh, innovation. Uh, we have uh, funding statements. So these are written by uh, committees made of ACS members, and then they're approved by the board of directors, and they're good for three years, each one of our policy statements. And that's essentially our hunting licenses so anything that falls under uh, if we have policy coverage to try to advance or in some cases slow down um, legislation, that, that's that's it's not up to us. We have to follow what the policy uh, the policies say. And uh, some, yeah, they get renewed every three years. There are, sometimes new statements are made, sometimes old statements are are um, removed because they're just not relevant anymore. So, There's, uh, yeah, smarter minds than mine decide what we are actually, uh, what we battle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, like, there's an election, Mm -hmm. obviously, going on. (laughs) Um, And there are things like these 20 questions, 20 science-related questions that candidates get asked and things like that. Does the American Chemical Society have any... um, I don't know how to ask this. Input. Is, there, input is there? Is there any response to that? Are you? Is the American Chemical Society involved in that in any way?
2: Uh, yep. Good question. We reached out to all of the campaigns um, when they were still Marco Rubio was still in the picture because I remember uh, asking him, Bernie, Trump, Hillary. The thing is, when someone's a candidate, they're not as responsive to what is your how do you feel about science and research. Uh, but they have now all released, they have their science positions. Um, I can't remember which organization did it, but they posted, it's kind of just boilerplate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll feel good, you know, we're, we're for. Funny thing is no one will ever tell you they're against science or research. No, no one ever says that. But they may, if you say, what are your top ten issues, it may not be even in their top ten. So uh, we do, it is a bipartisan issue which is nice um, but uh, yeah for th- it, a presidential year is pretty crazy in that the schedule is completely different so right now um, Congress is trying to just finish up a continuing resolution the the uh, fiscal year 16 ends tomorrow actually and they're trying to just patch together a short budget until after the elections because they all just want to go home and campaign so they're trying to like let's not do anything real right now. We'll go home and campaign, come back in December, and then we'll fund the government for the rest of the year. Hmm. So it's a crazy time right now. Like, we're going to be on recess for all of October, which never, w- w- only happens in election years. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, we reached out to the candidates. They, they, they really try and hit on, uh, I guess, more general issues than specific science ones
3: um so we're in an le- election year um what do you think it's going to happen with with congress because basically congress and the senate are kind of the main key players in a, in a lot of a lot of issues
2: yeah that's an interesting thing to uh speculate on right now and i can just speculate so no no bets being made here but uh the senate has about a five seat differential right now the republicans have um, five more seats than the Democrats. There's two independents in the Senate, Bernie Sanders and Angus King from Maine, but they caucus with the Democrats. So really, it's a, it's a five-seat differential. Uh, there's a good chance, based on a lot of close Senate races, that the Senate could flip, and the Democrats may have a majority control of the Senate in the next Congress, which would make a variety of things interesting. The House of Representatives, there is the Republicans have a a really significant advantage there. And we don't expect to see, I think it's 50 seats, uh, approximately 50 seats. That's not probably, something really crazy would have to happen for the Democrats to win the House. So it'll probably be a Republican House, a a Democratic Senate, there's a good chance of. And then... uh, yeah, I don't really want to speculate on who's going to win the presidency. I would say after the debate on Monday, Hillary's looking a little stronger again, but don't count uh, that orange guy out at all uh, <laughs> because there. You know, we. The more you knew about politics, the more you expected him to not win the nomination. So, never say never. They've got a couple more debates, and who knows? But it will be. Um, an adventurous 40 uh, some days between now and the election.
3: Mm-hmm. So it, with that in mind and with the, the houses, if the Senate flips and yeah. who knows who takes the presidency, um, how big of a challenge would that be in advocating for the issues that you, that ACS advocates for?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I alluded earlier to much of what we do is relationship building. Mm-hmm. So hopefully our allies, win, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or in the Senate or the House, people that, that we've built relationships with and the, their staff, that they are still around. So people will answer the phone when we call, basically, and we don't have to start completely from scratch, which does happen sometimes, because the House you know, and the House of Representatives the term's only two years, so there are, we've had situations where we've become pretty tight with a member on, on a committee that meant a lot to us, and then they lost re-election. Um, in the Senate, that's a six-year term, so they stick around a little longer. Uh, but so it would change specifically what we do if we lost some allies, which I don't think right now that is a too big of a concern. Um, and whether or not who who had control of the chamber, uh, if the Democrats regained majority of the Senate, then they would be they'd have majority control over all the committees, which really will dramatically affect things. So. We're just speculating, so let's see what happens. Uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to guess too much. <laughs>
0: well, uh, thank you, Ryan Davison from the American Chemical Society for joining us. Um, this was a super interesting topic. We, uh, of course, scientists care about what happens to science, and science policy is a big part of that. So, thank you for joining us. My
2: pleasure.
0: Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um. And uh, we hope you have a good Sunday. We're the big electron on KCAU 88.1.
1: Thanks very much.